Can I ask you guys a personal question? I just think that's funny. It's not really a personal question. Um, who here knows what a power clean is? Okay, by a show of hands, raise your hand if you know what a power clean is. Why, thank you, Holly. Could you make your way up here? Bradley, could you bring this barbell up? I have been waiting so long to use this analogy. All right, so Holly's been slightly informed right there in the center where everyone can see Holly's. All right, watch out for the communion table. We've got limited space up here. Okay, hold on, guys. This is important, all right? Holly, I would love for you to do three power cleans, all right? But when you set up, relax while I got some instruction I need to give. Holly, when you set up, I want you to make sure that there's even amounts of pressure on your forefoot and heel on both feet, all right? Make sure your back is super flat. Don't, don't worry, we're going to talk for a little bit. Engage the lats, okay? I know you can't really hear anything I'm saying, but you're really good at these, so it should be good. Um, as you pull the bar from the ground, pull smooth first, driving through the heel, okay? And then once you clear the knee, gently pull the barbell into the body, gently jumping and shrugging, and then quickly pulling the hips back, landing firm on the heel. Hold on, one last thing. Whatever you do, I don't want you to get below three inches above parallel. Okay, hold on. Do you understand? You do? Okay, all right. All right, three reps, please. This three beautiful power cleans. Remember to stay heavy on the heel. Set the back. All right, let's give it up for Holly. Woo! All right, bring it nice and close. Bar close. There you go. Nice and smooth. Nice and smooth. Remember, heels back. Hips back. Beautiful. All right, two more. Two more. Thank you. That was outstanding. You're doing a great job. Wonderful. Awesome. All right, good. One last one. Okay, stay on those heels, hips back. Outstanding. Let's give it up for Holly. Thank you. Brad, if I get a little help with this barbell. Thank you, Holly, very much. Appreciate it. Guys, the instruction I gave her seemed simple, right? Okay, <laughs> okay all right. But I mean like heels down, heavy on the heels, right? What I'm working with up here is a pretty comprehensive knowledge of the muscular skeletal system, right? I also have 23 years of Olympic weightlifting experience, been coaching for about a decade, right? And there's one other thing that's in my head. I'm Holly's coach, okay? I know some interesting details about Holly. Just like she is athletic, powerful, um, she moves incredibly well, but she has the knees of a 68-year-old union pipe fitter. Okay, I know that because of her career in volleyball and a botched surgery, that her knees are pretty unstable and arthritic. Okay? The information that I was giving her, though simple, was putting her body in the safest, most powerful position that she could be in. If she was to land a little heavy on her toes, it would deload her posterior chain, these large muscles in the back, creating the need to become unstable and creating a shearing force on her kneecap, right? Those cues were simple, land with the hips back, right? But it's with the working knowledge of how the body works and who Holly is. If she participates in this movement correctly again and again and again, eventually it will be the only way she knows how to move that object and she will become incredibly strong. What would happen if she disobeyed my instruction? She would eventually get hurt. 
which is a painful, long recovery process to bring you back to where you were, used to be. Okay? I have something more important that we are going to talk about. That's my coaching instruction. This is the greatest instruction I have ever found in my life. Uh, the, the author and inspirer of this book doesn't only know the, the human anatomy, he understands the inner workings of the universe. He also knows our corporate, collective, and individual shortcomings and failures. Let's see what the Word of God says about the Word of God. We're not even, get, we're not even there yet, guys, but let's just listen to this. We haven't even started. <laughs> Proverbs 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the table of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of both God and mankind. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understandings. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. Turn from every kind of evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Guys, today's sermon is titled, Bring Out the Book. This book. And I don't know if you guys know this, but every preacher's job is to partner with the Holy Spirit to bring the Word of God so that we can solve our problems. Not in a self-help kind of way, in like renewing and restoring our souls in the world kind of way. The problem that we are trying to solve today is a big one. Um, you can put it up there. It's we are looking at the unnecessary suffering caused by humanity's self-reliance and our inability to believe and obey God. That's what we're looking at today. That's why I said buckle your seatbelts. It's a doozy. Um, but if you could, turn with me in your text to chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Beginning in verse 1, we'll land in verse 12. And it says this, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men and women and all who could understand, and the people listened attentively. The book of the law, to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built just for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matthiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hekiah, Messiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mashiel, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbanana, <laughs> Zechariah, and Meshulam. <laughs> yeah, I've practiced those a lot. Ezra... PR. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, 
And the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Hamin, Akub, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanah, and Peleah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meanings so that the people understood what was being said. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest, and the, teachers, uh, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this is a holy day that the, to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not grieve. Then all of the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Father God, help us to understand your instruction. Lord, I pray right now that you would send your spirit to soften our hearts, to make our minds able to receive your truth. And Lord, this morning, my prayer is that you would beautify your church and seek and save the lost through your word. Amen. Guys, we are in week five of our series in Nehemiah. We're doing a pretty comprehensive study through this book. Last week, Jason did an outstanding job of instructing us how to build a merciful and generous community through chapter 5 of Nehemiah. We find ourselves here in chapter 8, um, and at this point uh, in this story, thanks to Zerubbabel and his team, the altar has been constructed. Thanks to Ezra and the priest, he has ministered to the people of Israel, and they have constructed the temple. Um, and now, in these last few chapters, we've seen the homes of the Israelites restored and built. We've seen debts forgiven, people set free from slavery. And in 52 days, the wall of Israel was built. Five days later is when this happens. There's remarkable timing in this story. We're seeing God move in incredible ways. Um, it is exciting because what is happening in the hearts of the people of Israel. It's incredible and exciting. And what we're about to see is that the word of God is changing the hearts of humanity. All right, let me give you guys a little roadmap for what we're going to do today. Hopefully we'll make it through it all. Um, here is our plan for today. We are going to first look at why they are weeping. That is where the problem lies. Okay. Then we're going to look at what the teachers helped them to understand. What was... What was able to change their incredibly downcast disposition? And what can we learn from this? Anyhow, let's move into point one, all right? So why were they weeping? Let me give you a little bit of context, but the first point in why they were weeping has to do with their history. You see, um, We have to understand what is significant about this 
very special occasion, all right? And the story begins about 1,440 years before this specific point in history. Um, excuse me. felt like an eternity. Thank you. We have to understand what is significant about the holy day. And so in um, Exodus 19 is when I believe this day was first kind of memorialized. We see it in Leviticus 23 verse 24 um, where it talks about this special, special occasion, but it's interesting because the Bible doesn't make it totally clear. It just says, this will be a solemn day of rest and a memorial proclaimed with a trumpet blast today on the seventh month and the first day of the Jewish calendar. It is the Feast of Trumpets. All right. Um, this is a very specific and unique time of year for the people of Israel. Right? On the first, we would have the Feast of Trumpets where we're supposed to rest and commemorate this day by trumpets blasting. A few days later, on the 10th, we would see the Day of Atonement where sacrifices would be made so the people of Israel would have a right standing with God. And then we see a few days after that on the 15th, the Feast of Tabernacles. This whole season recreates this incredible story tied to Israel's history. And now, because it's a little bit unclear on where this day originates from, there's basically two camps that the scholars believe. I think both kind of tell the same story, which is great. But in Genesis 22, when Isaac was to sacrifice his son, this ram appeared, um, and they believe that the shofar, a ram's horn, is the thing that would be blasted on that day. I tend to agree with the people that believe it uh, originates from Leviticus 19. All right? And so what is that day about? It's actually the first time we see in the biblical narrative the story of God of trumpets blasting. So if you go to any good kind of um, Bible tool, you type in trumpets, there it is, right? And um, it's this beautiful story that takes place at Mount Sinai. We find Israel following Moses' leadership. God has done remarkable things to deliver them out of Egypt and slavery. Uh, he's brought them from injustice and oppression. They've been wandering through the desert, and they have arrived at this legendary place, the mountain of Sinai. The Bible says that on that day, the mountain was covered with a thick cloud Lightning and thunder rang out, and a trumpet rang out so loud that the people in the camp trembled with fear. And the sound grew louder and louder each day. The thing that is incredibly unique about this memorial, this was the first time God was going to introduce himself personally to the people and make a pact with them, a promise, a covenant. Let's uh, have a look at Exodus chapter 19. Stay with me, guys. It says this. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, and how I bore them on the wings of eagles, and brought them to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, 
for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. Moses goes down, talks to his homies, and this is how they respond. (laughs) All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported these words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. Do you know what has happened since this day? In uh, you know, roughly 900 years before the text we're in right now, it has been a 900-year repeat epic failure. They've had moments of success, but here, here are just some, some bullet points is what has been transpiring since then. They, uh, God literally had to kill off that generation in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Joshua then take over. He did a pretty good job, but things got sideways when he was done. Um, they demanded for a king in place of God's leadership. And by the time they were done following the leadership of those kings, they were using slaves, much like they were in Israel, to build their kingdom. They had started worshiping other gods, gods and to the extent of participating in child sacrifice. They had strayed incredibly far. Another thing that the Bible talks about why the Israelites might be grieving, we find it in Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, and it says this. Um, Ezra had been praying, and it says, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehananah, the son of uh, Elishib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Think of it this way. This would be similar to a very special occasion. I'm looking forward to, maybe, maybe my sons are called to singleness. That's an incredible calling. It's the calling that Paul had. It's the calling that Jesus had as well. They had an undivided heart between them and God. Maybe, maybe that's the call in their life. Maybe they're going to get married. But let's say Hudson's getting married. It's a beautiful wedding. A lot of time and energy has gone into this incredibly celebratory event. Hudson and his spouse have prepared their own vows, and they're going to make a pact before God to love one another unconditionally so that the world could see the love of God. And this is a massive hypothetical situation, but let's just say Jacqueline and I are both there. We went through a brutal divorce 10 years ago, and we are at each other's throats still. It's a special occasion, but the occasion itself reminds me of my repeat and utter failure. And guys, if you have experienced divorce, I almost didn't bring this up. This isn't accusatory. This isn't meant to heap shame on you or anything like that, but that's a bit of what it would be like. Something monumental, something epic, something before God, and because of our past, it makes it difficult to celebrate, and it causes us to weep and mourn. The deep sense of the national sin impressively brought to their remembrance by the reading of the law and its denunciations affected the hearts of the people with penitential sorrow. The painful remembrance of their national sin which the reading of the law had awakened was why they were grieving. Or in other words, 
They are grieving because they realize that their self-reliance has caused massive amounts of self-inflicted pain and suffering, and now they stand in debt to God once again for being rescued from their individual and national hopelessness and calamity. That's why they're grieving. It's brutal. All right? Well, let's talk about um, what did the teachers uh, help them to understand. What words were made known to them that they now comprehended? What truth was being taught on this day from daybreak until midday that caused them to turn from mourning to rejoicing? What divine truth did they now understand so that they were now turning from sorrow and stingy hearts into joyful and generous people? During this day, they would read from the five books of Moses. The story that I talked about in Exodus 19 was most likely discussed. There's other things. Um, uh, we know that the Levites probably called on Deuteronomy verse 16, 11, where it says, hey, do not mourn or weep on these days of festival celebration. But that's a bit of like saying, hey, stop crying, right? <laughs> hey, just don't, don't do that, right? Uh, my son, Augustine, <laughs> he gets really upset. He is massively passionate. Uh, his curly hair is an expression of his emotions. Like literally, just, they just grow out and come down right and there's these there's these moments there's these moments where i'm like you just gotta let him go like just he's gotta dislike and we're talking like you can see the veins in his neck as he cries i'm just like dude you could bring it down a notch and just like none of that works right um maybe in exodus 34 after israelite had already started worshiping other gods moses came down the mountain he was so upset he dropped the tablets and they shattered. He had to go back up to get a new set. Like, by the time it took him to get down with the rules of the covenant, they had already broken, like, the biggest one, right? And he goes back up to the mountain, and the Lord says this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Or perhaps in Ezra's blessing, where he blessed the Lord, the great God, he quoted Psalm 107. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he, his love endures. What's up, man? Hey. His love endures forever. Um, but what we see central in the text and where it pops up for the first time is this scripture that you have seen stitched on pillows, maybe printed on shirts, stickers on cars. But it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? What did it mean to them? Given the fact that they are now standing <laughs> in this complete city, that anyone alive at the time when the original temple, the original walls was built, it would be painfully obvious that it wasn't as glorious and beautiful as it was before. And as they stand there together for the first time in a long time and they hear these words proclaimed, and as they're reminded of their, sh their sin, their failures, their disobedience, their human imperfection and weakness. What did it mean to them? And this is from um, Desiring God. It says, The chosen rescued and promised God's people suffered through, though chosen rescued and promised, God's people suffered through severe consequences for their continual rejection of him and his covenant. Ezra read, 
from God's word and recited his law to the people and they were shattered by the vast disobedience and rebellion. Their exile was severe both in its brutality and how it burned into their minds an identity of the people. Who were they without the land, without the temple? How do they relate to God now? What was their special, was their special relationship almost lost, also lost? And says, even still, God was willing to rebuild and restore his people. The day God reaffirmed to them that they, will, they are still the chosen people and they were still, and he was still their God. That is joy that could impart strength. Have you ever gotten to a point in your life where you thought you had made a mistake so massive that there was no coming back from it? I remember having to confess that I had looked at pornography to Jacqueline about five years ago. That was that moment for me. Uh, and then when she responded, I realized it was valid. <laughs> um, guys, I don't bring that up to embarrass myself. I don't bring, I'm not embarrassed by it. It's something God has dealt with. But in that moment, I was terrified to bring this to Jacqueline. I was scared. I felt like, what is she going to do? I've broken a commitment that I've made to her. Technically, I've participated in adultery in my mind. The reinstatement of God's covenant was absolutely scandalous. They deserved nothing. And what this verse means is that it is not our joy, it is not our affection with ourself, it is God's unwavering, unconditional, and perfect love for humanity that holds this promise together. My friends, my wife has fully forgiven me. This is, a, a, this is way behind us. Our love life is intimate and real. Um, it is way better than it was before this whole thing happened. Uh, guys, I cannot encourage you enough to confess that type of stuff. If your wife loves Jesus, things tend to get much better, and the most beautiful thing happened. I was fully known and still loved by my wife. Do you know what that produced in me? Great joy. It turned my mourning and sorrow into rejoicing, not just in the, my compassionate wife, but in the radically gracious God that empowered her to forgive me. This is a moment like that for Israel. It is the sweetest slap on the face that they could possibly get. The beautiful thing in this picture that they had begun to realize is that no matter how far we stray from God, when we return, he brings us back to where we left off. They're back in the land. The walls are built. The temple is done. For the first time in at least 70 years, the book is opened, the people are together, and God is leading them once again. All right, what can we learn from this text? We can learn to be hungry for the word of God. We should demand that the word of God be brought out. Demand to our own hearts, our own minds. Demand in our Bible studies, demand in our groups. We should listen attentively to its word. 
We should trust our teachers like the Levites that came around. It's this beautiful teaching illustration, this picture of the Word of God being declared and it being um, carried out into these smaller groups and taught almost one-on-one so that they could reach understanding. Guys, the teachers in this community, I cannot implore you enough to listen to what they have to say. Not, Not just me, all of us. If there is someone up here, it's because we believe they have incredible amounts of love for each and every one of you. Not sure if you noticed, um, or I hope you hold this opinion, we are not pushing for profile. We are not fighting for a turn at the table. We defer to one another. We allow people to grow in the pulpit. And our overall arching desire is that the Word of God would change lives for His glory. I implore you to trust your teachers. Then we should seek to make sure that our families and every individual can understand it. Uh, for parents in the room, it is never too early to start teaching the truth of God to your children. We have a rule in our house, a couple rules. You've got to listen to mom and dad. You've got to be kind to each other. And when you break one of those rules, you have to repent. You have to apologize. You have to say, I'm sorry. And it's simple. But I'm telling you, this gets neglected. And what we are desperately trying to do is fill their life with truth so that they too can avoid much pain, suffering, and sorrow throughout their life. We should make sure that our children understand. We should make sure that we understand. I don't know if you know this, but that this book is completely inexhaustible. Probably the most profound thing about preparing for this specific message, I have never experienced so much of God's personal ministry to me. I understand more clearly who I am and who he is. And it's amazing. This is what changes us. So if this book can facilitate human flourishing, what are the symptoms that we should be looking for? Like the things that we looked at with Holly's technique, there's some very obvious things that you can look at and see when things are moving correctly or incorrectly, when she is potentially putting herself at risk or harming one another. But these, these things in the text, the fruit that is produced by people understanding the word of God, and it's not up on the screen, I'm going to read them to you. But in verse 1, we see unity among the people. They were together in the square like one human being. I don't know, like, it's like the author was trying to find words to make it incredibly obvious that this, this people group had unity again. We see it uh, manifested in practical service. Um, it says that this platform was built for the occasion, right? Um, this is a very intentional and selfish plug for the logistics team and all other people, all other, I, I lead a logistics team, huge shout out guys, really proud of what you do. Um, And it's interesting, something I tell someone new to the team every single time, almost every time. Tony, we had this talk, right? You remember that? Um, I said, hey man, the work that you do here is incredibly simple, but never disconnect that with the will of God and that something simple like pointing a light at my face or straightening a chair 
or making sure the AC is on could eliminate a distraction and create an environment that the word of God can go out and someone may come to faith. That simple thing you're doing is wrapped up in the advancement of the kingdom. My friends, um, I love doing simple things. I absolutely enjoy it, and I would just implore you, one of the fruits that we see of God moving amongst his people is that they're just practically willing to serve. Someone built an altar. (laughs) Someone hammered some wood, not an altar, a platform. It's like scaffolding, right? That was so that Ezra could be seen by all as he opened the book and that this moment could happen. We see that as well. We see generosity. In verse 12, it says, go and give to those who have not prepared for the occasion. People that are not ready for this holy day, don't call them out, don't call them sinful, don't say, do you love the Lord? Why haven't you done that? Give them some of yours so that they can celebrate as well. One of the effects of God's word penetrating our heart and causing us to move correctly manifests in extravagant generosity. And then what we saw, we saw mourning replaced with great rejoicing. Guys, if you are a Christian, and there are seasons, I've, I've been loved by God and swear it wasn't true for seasons. There's this, these periods that you walk through, that you go through, where the Lord seems distant even though he is not far off. We could talk more about that later. But even in those dark times, there's still this unshakable joy that holds everything together. And guys, I don't know if you are experiencing something where the Lord feels distant, but when we press into God, it produces joy, even in the midst of suffering. And the last thing that we see in the test that I would like to call out before we move on is that there was undignified worship. They fell on their face. How do you worship with your face on the ground? I've never, I mean, I've kind of done it, but I'm just like embarrassing, distracting, what will other people think? They did not care. It was a joyous and noisy occasion. And when God moves sovereignly amongst his people, and he draws us into his word, this is what it produced. Unity, humility, practical service, generosity, great joy, and undignified worship. Ben, why don't you join me up here? Go ahead and come on up. Guys, there's so much happening in this text. We have this radical restoration of God's people. Before this, he had moved upon the hearts of pagan kings to release his people and to resource them. The same same nation that brought their city to rubble gave them wood, resources, and protection to rebuild it. The only way that could happen is if the Spirit of God was moving in the minds and hearts of those people. You see these leaders um, of God's people, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and there's these moments where they pray, they see, and they are grieved. The hearts are broken for the way that things are. That is when God is on the move. Things that used to be okay because they're broken, they are no longer okay to be broken. We see God mysteriously drawing his people into one central place, rebuilding everything so that we can learn from it. 
And this is such an interesting text. Go ahead, guys. It's such an interesting text because it's an Old Testament text, but these things speak of revival. It's weird because I don't want to ruin the end, but it totally falls flat. Like everything goes back to kind of how it was. It's just because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the new covenant. This was the beginning. God was orchestrating things so that we could one day know who Jesus is, understand what he came to do, and then the power that they experienced for a moment. It says when we believe with faith, with faith, that the spirit that rose Jesus from the grave rests inside of us. And my hopes this morning as we talk about this, I just want to read a couple things from Michael Eaton's commentary. He is a friend of ours. I have met him personally, sat under his teaching. It's very simple, but he says this. During the seventh day in the first month, it was a special day in the law of Moses. The people gathered in Jerusalem, and it was a time of revival. And the Holy Spirit led them to God's word. In times when the Holy Spirit is at work, the people of God become hungry for the Word of God. He says that um, before the public explanation of the Word of God, there is a pause, and the people give themselves to worship. The Word of God opened before them. Ezra and the people turn to praise God. Ezra leads the people in prayer. And the people answer, Amen, Amen. It is an emotional, emotional and noisy occasion. The people have their hands raised in the air. And they are shouting their amens. Then they prostrate themselves to the ground. It is a time of revival. And when God is at work, people are not bothered about whether their worship is beautiful or dignified. Guys, the word of God should produce extravagant worship. And it actually, when I read those other things about generosity and practical service, that's just how we live our life worshiping. When we're not busy singing, this is how we conduct ourselves. And despite my long pauses and very foggy brain, um, I have faith that God is going to do this. Maybe not today. I feel like what he has told me is get your sons ready for revival. <clears throat> in a time when the church becomes so beautiful in obedience that the world around it takes notice in a different way and things begin to change. Um, so guys, this morning, I just want to implore you, I, church, if you're visiting, thanks for coming. I'm so glad that you're here. Normally my preaches are for you, but today, church, I felt like God, as in my preparation, he said, this is for her. And even with um, how I've gone through the word of God today, I have confidence that God is working and he's moving. And so I just want to ask you a couple questions. And then actually Jacqueline had a, a prophetic dream earlier in the week that I believe God wants to speak to us today. Is your self-reliance causing you unnecessary pain and suffering? Do you feel like you've strayed from the place where God last spoke? Is it time to come back? I've done this at least 40 times as a Christian, guys. It's a part of the journey. Are you hungry for the Word of God? I am well acquainted with the Word of God, and my biggest problem in prepping for this is because 
I, I did an exhaustive study of the Old Testament. I just could not get enough of what he says through his word. And is your, mar- is your life marked with these things or is it marked with disappointment, unbelief, a fear that the Lord does not see you, that he's forsaken you? Do you feel like you're exiled from the place that you should be? And one last question. Are you doing good, but you just want more? That's what I'd like us to respond to today. But before we do that, babe, can you come on up here? Can I get the microphone? I'm going to read it because I will for surely report things out if I don't. Um, actually, the date on this is like three weeks ago. So I was riding a bike. It was like little girl bike, like too small. Um, I was going a long distance on a really rocky, gravelly, like dirt road, uneven pavement. I was super hard to ride. And I would miss turns and have to go back. Um, kept getting lost and then kind of find my way. And I cat with me that I couldn't carry because um, I couldn't carry any more weight. I was exhausted. Um, I was riding, I think like side saddle for a lady on a horse. So I was like riding a microphone bike, like how dumb is that? But I was wearing a dress and I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> um, so I stopped to get some water and I just got a cup because I couldn't carry the bottle. Um, I started riding correctly, my knees on both sides, realized I had shorts on under my dress the whole time. And the ride was so much easier. And I woke up feeling like, like that's my journey with God. I, I do think the way I think I should because it's more appropriate or whatever. feel like something we struggle with as a people. People I lead, my family. I don't know if this is something of a poor example we've set for you. It's actually why I brought up the pornography thing, the pornography thing from years ago. We, we, and God touched on this last week through a prophetic word, but it was the discipline of God. We equate that with failure. We equate that with shame. We equate that with God being angry with us. But the Bible teaches different. And I just want to read Hebrews 12 over us, and I would just like us to respond in prayer. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throat of God. Consider him who endured 
for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggles against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and have forgotten that, uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as a son and daughter. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, the correction of God, nor be weary when I reproved, when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in, <clears throat> in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate ch child and not a son. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us um, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our souls and life? For the, dis the discipline, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. My friends, this morning, if you have been running from the discipline of God, I want to remind you of what we heard last week. God does not just bring us back to where we used to be um, in our souls. When we respond in obedience and faith, he changes who we are. He actually gives us a head start on the next leg of the race. And maybe this morning, there's nothing you're ignoring. There's no blatant thing that you've been running from, but you just want more. You want when the word of God is opened in your life for you to feel like you have to stand. You want unity amongst people in a new powerful way. You want to be empowered to live for the benefit of others through generous living. And you want to feel the freedom to live a life that would be considered scandalously worshipful to a watching world. If you would like to receive prayer for any of those things, I'm going to have a prayer team to my left and to your right. And we would love to pray for you this morning. So what we're going to do, we're going to go into worship. There'll be people over there. We would love to pray for you. Sean's going to get up and lead us in communion. Um, and let's do it.